This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. It's just not fair. Parents, how often have you heard that one? I was reminded of a student while he was, uh, he was at school. He was taking a biology exam. And uh, the previous week, he had been very responsible. He'd been studious in preparing for this exam. The big day arrived, and he walked into the classroom, sat at his desk. He laid out his writing implements in front of him, and the teacher gave the instruction to turn over the exam and explained, students, you will see that there are only numbers on your exam, numbered 1 through 40. As you look around the room, you will see there are 40 different birds. Uh, you have to identify those birds. The one difficulty with this exam is that the birds are covered up except for their legs. So you have to identify the species of these birds by their legs. Well, this student quickly became distraught with anxiety. I mean, he had looked at some frog's legs during the week. He had reviewed the process of photosynthesis, but that was no good to him now. He took a couple of deep breaths and he began looking around the room at all these birds' legs. He saw a couple of sets that looked the same, and then he saw one with webbed feet, and he put down duck, but then he came across another set of legs that had webbed feet. He thought to himself, well, if I put down duck, I'm going to look like an idiot. It was just a nightmare. The more and more he, he got uptight as he was trying to work through this because he, he had studied so hard, he was agitated. And it got to the point, he got so agitated that he ripped up his exam, he crumpled it into a tight ball, and he threw it at the teacher, screaming, it's just not fair. And he walked out of the room. Just as he got to the door, the teacher said to him, wait just a minute, boy. What's your name? The boy slowly turned around and he said, you tell me. It works better in the UK. It's just not fair. More than a few have made that assessment to the famous story of Noah and the flood because it broaches a subject that rubs modern people the wrong way. The subject, divine judgment. So we're gonna dive into this today. We're gonna look at the necessity of divine judgment, the pain of divine judgment, the solution to divine judgment, and the result of divine judgment. First, the necessity of divine judgment. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we read this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. A few verses later, in verses 11 and 12, we read this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. You can see the emphasis in these verses is on God's unilateral assessment of the human condition. He doesn't consult with us. He doesn't want our input. 
He unilaterally pronounces what's good and what's evil. We don't get to choose that for him. That's one of the travesties of the garden. Adam and Eve chose to define for themselves what was good and what was evil. And we see what happens when we entrust the human race with that power. This is also one of the fundamental differences between creator and creature. On one level, this is the fundamental problem all unbelievers have, an unwillingness or resistance to letting God be God. So in response to this God-defined wickedness, God resolves to wipe from the face of the earth the human race in chapter 6, verse 7. And so here we are. We're confronted with divine judgment, which is a problem for many modern people. The notion of divine judgment is distressing for some, even primitive for others. What I want to try to show is that while having a God of judgment is never neat and tidy and packaged well, getting rid of a God of judgment presents us with bigger problems. Having a God of judgment is a problem for us. It is. We need to acknowledge that. But getting rid of it, getting rid of a God of judgment actually presents us with bigger problems. That's what I want to try to drill down into in this first point, the necessity of divine judgment. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian. As you can imagine, being from the Balkans, he is intimately familiar with injustice. Wolf, in his fantastic book, Exclusion and Embrace, writes this. He says, violence thrives secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Violence thrives secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. What he's saying is that if we don't believe in a God who enacts justice, we will be tempted to take matters into our own hands. If we get rid of divine judgment, the question is, how does the cycle of violence stop? And what Wolf contends for in this book is that if you long for the cycle of violence to end, then you need a God of judgment. This is what led Scott Sauls to conclude the following. He said, we need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids will once and for all remove the bullies and the perpetrators of evil from his playground. Those who cannot or will not appreciate this have likely enjoyed a very sheltered life and are therefore naive about the emotional impact of oppression, cruelty, and injustice. To accept that God is a lover but not a judge is a luxury that only the privileged and protected can enjoy. Let me come at this from a slightly different angle. Isn't all violence the enacting of justice from one person or culture's perspective? Isn't all violence really the enacting of justice from one person or culture's perspective? Let's take 9-11. September 11th, 2001, to us, was an atrocity, a grave injustice. 
But what was 9-11 to the Middle Eastern Muslims who carried it out? Justice. As defined by them. What about Charlottesville this past year in Virginia? What was that? To many, that was tyrannical oppression. But what was it to the racial supremacists? Justice, at least defined as defined by them. Same could be said of the horror that took place in Las Vegas. See, when justice has as many definitions as there are perspectives or worldviews or cultures, guess what? There's going to be a cycle of violence. What is unjust to one is just to another. So the only way the cycle ends is if there is only one definition of justice that all are made to abide by. This is what Wolf and Sauls are saying. We need a God to be a God of judgment. We need his justice to be definitive and final because that's the only way the cycle ends. As I mentioned, I don't think that neatly buttons up God's justice into a nice, tidy, easy-to-understand package. But I'll tell you what it does do for me. It shows me that if I get rid of divine judgment, I've got a bigger set of problems. The necessity of divine judgment is the only way the cycle of violence ends. Second, the pain of divine judgment. Gustave Doré was a French artist. He captures the mood of the flood and his engraving of a huge expanse of empty sea with one lone rock protruding a few feet above the waves. There are three terrified children on the rock and slipping into the sea are a mother and father trying desperately to push a fourth little baby to safety. On the rocks, it's a giant tiger. Bodies are floating in the water and overhead circle the exhausted vultures. Noah and the ark is not a children's story. There's nothing cute about it. Dory's engraving is not an exaggeration. It's completely reasonable to conclude something like that happened. So my question to you is, does your heart recoil at the thought of divine judgment? Does it make your skin crawl? Does it bother you to the core that God would wipe people out? See, I don't think there's anything wrong with you if you cringe at the idea of divine judgment. If the thought of divine judgment is unbearable to you, I don't think there's anything wrong with you to think that way. Because there's someone else who is pained at the thought of divine judgment. And that's God himself. Genesis 6, verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. His heart was deeply troubled. God's posture toward human violence and the necessity of judgment is not like our posture towards incorrect math. 
It's not as though God stands at a distance and evaluates human evil, human violence, the cycle, as if that was two plus two equaling five. The text is emotional. God feels pain over sin and the justice it demands. This word in the original for deeply troubled is used in Isaiah 54, verse 6. We read there, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. So you're upset with with divine judgment. God is more upset with divine judgment. The kind of pain God feels over this is the same kind of pain felt by a deserted spouse. I don't know if you've ever come alongside someone, walked alongside someone who's been completely abandoned by a spouse. Pastorally speaking, I would say it's one of the most emotionally traumatic experiences a human being can have. It's bitter anguish. It's unfulfilled longing. The fact that God is deeply troubled like that is profound. You know why that's profound, that God would feel that? I'll tell you what it means. It means that God has voluntarily bound up his heart and life with ours. He didn't have to. Remember, he's God. He's not a contingent being. It's not as though he has knit his life to ours and is unable to withdraw. That would make him a contingent being. No, God has voluntarily bound up his heart with ours so that his joy is deeply tied to us. So when he sees the violence and evil of the human race, he doesn't stand at an emotional distance saying, oh, that's too bad. No, he experiences the deepest pain possible, the most shattering pain possible. See, one of the reasons I think we struggle with a story like this, with a topic like this, is that we have a caricature of God in our minds. You know what I mean by the caricature, the exaggerated features? We have a caricature of God in our minds. We, we picture him enacting this judgment with, with this ominous, reverberating belly laugh, as though God finds pleasure in his absolute power to judge. But that... That's not what the text is saying judgment is like for this God. It pains him so much that the only word available in the the language to convey the pain is the pain felt by a deserted spouse. Let's take this farther. In that moment when God evaluated the human race and saw the evil, the cycle of violence... And it deeply distressed him. He could have withdrawn his heart from us so that he no longer voluntarily felt life in the human world. But there's nothing in the text from there on out that would suggest he's done that. He has continued to knit himself to human experience, which means with evil... God suffers. Nicholas Wolterstorff put it this way. He said, every act of evil pulls tears from God. 
So the only way for the tears to stop is for God to either crush evil or withdraw his heart from the human race so he can stand back at a distance indifferent to it all. But to let human history continue as he has let it continue means he suffers. The God we worship, the God we worship is not emotionally indifferent to the notion of his justice. There's a point of application I think that's worth drawing out here. In the New Testament, Jesus is called a friend of sinners. It doesn't mean Jesus was just gracious and kind to people. He knit his heart to ours. True friendship attaches itself to people and sticks with them through suffering. A true friend attaches his or her heart to you to the extent that when you suffer, they suffer. That's true friendship. Now, when you hear this definition of what it means to be a friend, our temptation is to quickly get out our fingers and start pointing to people who haven't been true friends. But that's not God's way either. Rather than demanding a true friend, be a true friend. Be willing to attach your heart to someone so that when they suffer, you suffer. All of that is demonstrated in the pain that God chooses to feel in knitting himself to humanity. Third, the solution to divine judgment. Chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. There's a hint of this solution in this verse. God explicitly says that he has found Noah righteous. The word you is singular. God is referring explicitly only to Noah. Noah's family is the beneficiary of his righteousness. They get to board the boat because Noah was righteous. Noah's righteousness is their ticket to salvation. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, the story of Noah prefigures the story of God's judgment to come and the solution to it. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. As it was in the days of Noah, Jesus says, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So another judgment is coming, Jesus is saying. So how will people be saved from it? Jesus is the true and better Noah. Jesus is the true and better Noah. Just like Noah's righteousness saved his family from God's judgment, Jesus' righteousness will save his family from God's judgment yet to come. So my question to you, and the question that should be rolling around in all our heads, is very simple. Are you part of Jesus' family? That's the question. Are you part of Jesus' family? Have you entered into Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you boarded the boat? Keep in mind, you weren't born already on the boat. You're born off the boat. Have you boarded the boat? Are you in Christ? Have you entered into Christ? The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, therefore, there is now no condemnation. There is no judgment for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, his righteousness will shield you and save you from God's judgment to come. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean that Jesus' righteousness will save his family from God's judgment to come? I have said it this way before, and I will say it till the day I'm in the grave. Jesus lived the perfect life you could never live. Jesus lived the perfect life you could never live. Live. Jesus scored a perfect 100% on the righteous life exam. In order to board the boat, in order to be saved from God's judgment to come, we need a perfect score. Every one of us has already fallen woefully short of that. But Jesus entered our world and lived a perfect life for us. So the question then becomes, how do I get credit for the perfect life Jesus lived? How do I get credit for the perfect life Jesus lived? The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2 put it this way. He said, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. This word justified means to be made righteous. We know that a person is made righteous not because of the good things they do in life. Person is not made righteous because of the moral performance they put together during their years on earth. A person is made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. So how do I get credit for the perfect life Jesus lived? The answer is by faith. By trusting in the perfect life Jesus lived. So if God ever says to you, hey, why should I let you into my kingdom? The only thing you need to do is point to Jesus. Point to Jesus and say, he lived the perfect life I could never live and he died the death my unrighteous life rightly deserved. That's why. Everybody has a judgment day. Everybody has a judgment day. If you are a Christian, the judgment day for your sin has already occurred at the cross of Jesus Christ. See, the story of Noah points to Jesus. Noah's family was saved from God's judgment because God found Noah righteous. You will be saved from God's judgment to come if by faith you have entered into Christ. Brian Chappell recounts the following. He said, as a child, I loved the evenings that the kids in our family would sit by my father's chair while he read stories aloud. One of our favorites was the poem, The Highwayman. The poem tells of an adventurer who robs the coaches of English aristocrats. The daring highwayman is in love with an innkeeper's daughter. And by night, when the coast is clear, he courts her. The authorities learn of the romance, and one twilight before the highwayman arrives, British soldiers invade the inn. They tie the innkeeper's daughter at the window so the highwayman will see her and believe the way is safe. Then lest she try to warn her love in any way, the soldiers gag the maid and tie a musket at her heart that will fire at the slightest movement. The highwayman comes riding along. Unaware of the musket's 
that wait to cut him down. The highwayman gallops ever closer to his destruction. He sees his love in the window. She hears his horse's hooves on the lane. The soldiers cock their muskets. Nearer to the arms he loves, nearer to his destruction, the highwayman comes riding along. Then just as he is about to enter musket range, a premature shot rings out, warning him to turn back. The highwayman reins and turns as the frustrated soldiers shoot a futile volley. All the muskets fire, but only one found its mark. The one true shot was from the musket that fired the warning, the musket aimed at the innkeeper's daughter. She warned at the expense of her life. And the warning was the expression of a great love. See, the cross really is the climactic flood. It stands both as God's ultimate warning of the consequences of sin and also as the greatest expression of his love for sinners. If God did not love, he would not so graciously warn. The cross is the fatal cry of a savior to those he loves to turn from what will do them great harm. This is the solution to divine judgment. Last, let's look at the result of divine judgment. Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, we read this. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The use of the word rest is loaded with connections and implications. It's noteworthy that Noah's name means rest. Where have we seen this idea of rest before? Already mentioned in the creation account. After God completed the work of creating everything, he rested. Now, what does it mean that God rested? Well, he wasn't tired. He didn't need a nap. The notion of rest means the work is finished. Everything is as it should be. We are meant to see connections between that rest and the ark coming to rest. God has enacted his judgment. The work is finished. The ark comes to rest. Or to put it differently, everything is as it should be. Of course, that comes with a caveat, because in just a chapter, Noah's going to get drunk, bring embarrassment to his family, and the human race is going to start to spiral out of control again. But we are meant to see and experience through this story a type of rest, however imperfect it will prove to be. Evil has been wiped out. God is starting over with a new creation. So picture being one of Noah's family members, one of his adult children. You aren't blind to what has transpired over the past several months. You know full well the catastrophe that has taken place. But there also must be a peace about you. Why? You've been saved. Your family has been saved. The the incredibly evil world you lived in has on some level been made new. You are experiencing rest. 
How did that happen? What was the route you took to find rest? Trusting in God's gracious provision for your salvation. See, rest is the contentment, the satisfaction, the, the peace, the, the, the okayness that your soul longs for. Rest is the longing every one of us has to be able to stand back at some point and, and be able to say, yes, everything is as it should be. How do we find it? How do we find that rest? Well, how did Noah's family find it? They were captivated enough with God's gracious provision that they spent 50 to 75 years building a big boat. They found rest by believing God's message to them about the judgment to come that would result in their salvation and a new creation. See, the gospel is God's message to us about judgment and salvation. The gospel is the only route to rest. Any attempt to find rest that bypasses the gospel will ultimately result in you being overwhelmed and crushed by the waves. And we create numerous bypass routes to try to find rest, don't we? We create numerous bypass routes to try to find rest. We look to our careers. We say, if only I had this amount of success in my career, then I could take a step back and say everything is as it should be. But does that ever deliver? We look to romance. If only I could marry a person like this or that, then I could take a step back and say everything is as it should be. But does that ever deliver? We look to our families and we think, if only my family would would be like this or look like that, then I could take a step back and say everything is as it should be. But does that ever deliver? The gospel is the only route to rest. Resting in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way you're going to find some semblance in this life of okayness. Jesus truly is the only master who, if you fail him, will forgive you. And if you follow him, will fulfill you. He truly is the only master who, if you fail him, will forgive you. Your career's not going to do that. What career has ever forgiven you? Romance isn't going to do that. Designing the perfect family is not going to do that. Jesus is the only master who, if you fail him, will forgive you, and if you follow him, will fulfill you. There was a study done recorded in the archives of pediatrics and adolescent medicine. In the study, preschool kids were given identical foods in different wrappers. Preschoolers were then asked to sample the foods and, and, and report as to whether the foods tasted the same or better. One of the wrappers, McDonald's. The unmarked wrappers lost every time. 
Even apple juice, carrots, and milk tasted better when it came out of a wrapper with a golden arch. Nothing changes with age. We look at the small child and we think, how foolish. That's us in a more sophisticated form. We're still fooled by appearances. We think if we get that thing, that thing out there from which to us is, is a sleek looking wrapper, it will prove to be the magic bullet that gives us rest. But the story of Noah, which anticipates the story of Jesus, shows us the route to rest cannot be found even through attractive looking bypass routes. The route to rest travels only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus truly is the only master who if you fail him will forgive you and if you follow him will fulfill you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand amazed that you would willingly leave behind heaven, attach yourself to human experience and live a perfect life for us. Your righteousness is our salvation. Deepen our trust in you, I pray. And Jesus, we are tempted each day to pursue contentment and satisfaction through some means other than the gospel. Jesus, show us the futility of those pursuits. Instead, I pray that we would learn each day to board the boat of your gracious provision. We would be convinced each day the gospel is the only route to rest. Give us rest, Jesus. Give us rest. Through what you have done for us. In your name we pray these things.